Welcome to the Locked On Boston Bruins Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ian McLaren, and this is a daily Boston Bruins podcast where we discuss all things spoke to be, as well as take a look around the NHL, some pop culture stuff as well. To keep up with the Locked On Boston Bruins podcast, you can follow the show on Twitter at LO underscore Boston Bruins. You can also, of course, Subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and get instant access whenever a new episode is uploaded. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Ian C. McLaren. This week on the show, we're looking at some of the great moments in franchise history. We already touched on the 1970 Bruins a couple weeks ago, as well as the 2011 Boston Bruins. So I thought today we'd go all the way back to the beginning and see how the Bruins got their start. Uh, with a reading from Brian McFarland's Original Six. Now, last week on the podcast, I also uh, reviewed Mighty Ducks, the movie uh, from 1992. And over the weekend, I watched D2, the Mighty Ducks. And we will uh, go through that gem as well. So let me start, well, first of all, by saying I hope you all are doing well. Uh, I know in this period of social distancing due to COVID-19, it can be very difficult for some. Um, you know, I've had my ups and downs and just trying to get through it as best as possible. And certainly the podcast does help, even though we're not able to watch our first place Bruins, who ideally would have already advanced to the second round of the playoffs. Um, there's talk that maybe by June 1st, hockey may begin, you know, spinning the wheels towards a return. Albeit that was from a report from, uh, you know, John Scott, who is a all-star MVP to his credit, but, you know, not really connected as an insider. So we'll see and keep you all updated on that. Um, As I drink a cider here, let me begin by going back. Wow. Okay. Pull it together, Ian. Let's go back to the beginning of how the Bruins came to be. And again, I'm reading from Brian McFarland's Original Six, which was published, I believe, in 1999. Uh, And uh, a pretty entertaining, informative read, although a little cheeky at times as well, as you'll see. Here we go. Born in 1876, excuse my creaky chair here, Charles Francis Adams, a poor boy from Newport, Vermont, never owned a hockey stick as a youth. But he was adept with the broomstick, working his way around the potato sacks, the feed bags, and the other merchandise in the corner grocery store where he was first employed as a chore boy. The proprietor, noting the meticulous attention young Adams gave to sweeping up dust and debris, said that lad shows a lot of promise. He'll be running his own store someday. It was the start of a brilliant career in the grocery business one that would propel Adams all the way to the chairmanship of First National Stores, one of the major chain stores operating in the United States. That same unique visionary qualities that made him hugely successful in business also served him well in the world of sport. A racing enthusiast, he was the founder, president, and owner of Suffolk Downs, and he was instrumental in getting Perry Mutual betting legalized in Massachusetts. No idea what that means, but good for him. In the mid-30s, he was the principal owner of the Boston Braves of the National League and used his powers of persuasion to get Sunday baseball approved in Boston. Wow. Shocking in its day, I, I bet. 
Where he got his interest in sports, I don't know, his son Weston once said. As a young man, he worked so hard he had no time to play games himself. When young Adams moved from Vermont to Brookline, Massachusetts, he discovered hockey and was hooked for life. He and Weston attended most of the club games played at the Boston Arena, and in time he even sponsored a team, the Irish Americans. In 1924, Adams journeyed to Montreal to see the Stanley Cup Finals and became even more enthused. Those pros in the NHL can really play this game, he told his business associates. Well, no shit, they're in the NHL. I'm determined to get a team for Boston. Weston would say, when Dad got an idea in his head, there was no stopping him. He gambled all his life on the things he believed in and had a strong belief in the future of hockey. Adams applied for an NHL franchise at a meeting in Montreal on October 12, 1924, and was told that a man named Thomas Duggan had been granted two franchises on the condition they be placed in major U.S. cities. Adams snapped up one of the franchises for a fee of $15,000. Requests for franchises also came from Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, but these applications were shelved. Ah, suckers. Adams hired veteran hockey star Art Ross to turn his team and to serve as governor. To run his team, I mean. The Bruins played home games in the Boston Arena, which soon proved to be too small to house his new team. The Boston Garden, which opened in 1928, would not have been constructed if Adams had not guaranteed $500,000 rental for five seasons. To acquire some manpower for his Bruins, he boldly peeled off $300,000 in 1926 to purchase an entire league in Western Canada, which included more than 40 players, including Eddie Shore. Charles Adams enjoyed the thrill of three Stanley Cup championships. The first came the year the Garden opened, with the Bruins defeating the Rangers in a two-game final series. A decade later, in 1939, the Bruins defeated Toronto for the Cup, and two years later, they ousted Detroit in the finals. Charles Adams was elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1960 as a builder, indicating the high esteem in which he was held by his peers and associates in the game. Now as some bonus content, did you know that a woman from Montreal gets most of the credit for how the Bruins got their name? True story. Bessie Moss, a transplanted Canadian, was secretary to Art Ross, formerly a renowned professional player and the first Bruins GM. I actually didn't know that. Adams purchased the Bruins and selected Ross to be the man to uh, lead the team, as we just mentioned. They faced the task of selecting a nickname, and Miss Moss handled most of the correspondence between the two men pertaining on the subject. They nailed the colors down. Brown and gold were chosen because they emblazoned the storefronts of the grocery chain Adams owned. Interesting. I didn't realize the black and gold came from that. When Miss Moss learned that Brown was one of the colors high on Adam's list, she suggested the team be named the Bruins. A brown bear. There you have it. I guess it's not black and gold. We're talking brown and gold as they were at the beginning. Adams liked the idea and tipped their hats to Miss Moss. While the brown in the original uniforms followed the selection of the Bruins as a nickname, the club would drop the color brown and adopt gold, black, and white as their official team colors. I don't know. What do we think? Should they have kept the brown or gone with the black? Um, you know, I do like the the brown throwbacks. I wouldn't mind a brown Bruins hat. Uh, but, you know, black and gold has become what we all know the Bruins as. 
So yeah, there you go. A little history on how the Bruins got their start. Three cups very early on in their existence, which is obviously a great moment in franchise history and how the team got their name. Next time you're talking to one of your friends, Bruins fan, blow them away with the tidbit that the brown and gold came from the original owner's grocery store chain. The more you know. Now allow me to talk to you for a moment about Postmates. I kind of love them right now because I can get food delivered to my door without leaving the house or even opening the door. Given what's going on in the world with social distancing, Postmates has created non-contact deliveries. So when you order from local restaurants, everything gets left right outside your door. They also have Postmates Pickup, which you can use to order takeout from your favorite local restaurants. And right now, we should all be doing our part to support local businesses. They don't just deliver burgers or sushi. You can get stuff delivered from Walgreens, 7-Eleven, dropped right outside your door. Just download the Postmates app on iOS or Android, find your favorites, and get anything you want delivered within the hour. Now, for a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, just download the app and use the code Locked On. That's code Locked On for $100 of free delivery for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it. Postmate it. All right, let's now turn our attention to D2, The Mighty Ducks, which is a 1994 sequel to Mighty Ducks, which came out in. 1992 was written by Steve Brill, who wrote such movies as the first Mighty Ducks, Heavyweights, D3, the Mighty Ducks, Little Nicky, terrible. I actually walked out of that movie in the theater, Uh, Ready to Rumble, and also Walk of Shame. He's also appeared in a number of uh, movies, Drobit Taylor, Knocked Up. He appeared in D2 as well in a party scene with Gordon Bombay. This movie made $45.6 million at the box office. Less than the original, I believe, but still enough to generate a third and final film in the series, which was released in 1996. Let's go over the plot real quick. Uh, So Gordon Bombay, he's starring in the minor leagues and expected to reach the NHL at any moment. However, a career-ending knee injury brings him back to Minneapolis. He's offered a chance to coach a team representing the United States in the Junior Goodwill Games in Los Angeles. He manages to reunite most of the former Ducks players, and as they're uh, skating through Minneapolis, all coming back together, some Hawks, who the Ducks beat in the championship game in the first movie, try to enact revenge by um, putting some tripwire over a path in a park. This is two years later, mind you. Their plans are foiled by Fulton Reed, who leaves them tied up in their underpants. Team USA consists of many of the old ducks, in addition to five new players with special talents. There's a uh, rodeo guy, a figure skater, Uh, A new goalie who's much better than Goldberg. We'll talk about that later. Uh, There's another Bash brother. 
and Luis Mendoza, who infamously cannot stop. In Los Angeles, where the games are going to be played, the lure of celebrity distracts Bombay, and he begins to neglect the team for a luxurious lifestyle. He's given a home separate from the dorms. He's wined and dined by these parties, all by uh, Hendrix, uh, who we'll, we'll talk about here in a moment as well. Now, the team wins easy victories over Trinidad and Tobago, who rock these pretty amazing tie-dye uniforms. Uh, now, Trinidad and Tobago actually score on Team USA, which you know would be quite an embarrassment if that were to happen in real life. They also later beat Italy pretty easily. Fulton Reed and Dean Portman. Now, Dean Portman, I at first thought was played by Dean Kane, but I am mistaken in that. Uh, they gain recognition for their enforcer skills and are dubbed the Bash Brothers. Backup goalie Julie Gaffney, she asks Coach Bombay for a chance to play, but is told to wait as goalie Greg Goldberg is on a quote-unquote hot streak. That would be it allowing one goal in two games against Italy and, again, Trinidad and Tobago. I would not call that a hot streak, but that's just me. Now, the team then suffers an embarrassing 12-1 loss to Iceland, who's the major protagonist in the, this uh, tournament, in this movie. They're coached by ex-NHL player Wolf, nicknamed The Dentist, Stanson. They play very badly. Star center Adam Banks is slashed on the wrist. Banks continues to wear number 99, which is an affront to hockey. Bombay drives his players even harder. He calls a practice after this game, and... They begin to suffer from complete exhaustion, falling asleep while they're being tutored the next day, and then their tutor gives them the uh, practice off and uh, sets up a little conflict between coach and tutor there. Uh, so she cancels practice, confronts Bombay over his thoughtlessness. The team gets some rest, and then I think on a game day, actually, they encounter a street hockey team who teaches them how to play the right Oh, sorry, like, quote-unquote, the real Team USA. Of course, Keenan Thompson is on that team and shows off the knuckle puck for the first time. Now, Bombay continues to suffer from the pressure until Jan, the brother of uh, Bombay's mentor Hans, who's said to be back in Europe visiting their mother, I assuming that he passed away between the first and the second movies. I'll fact check that in a moment. He shows up and reminds Bombay of his love for the game. So much like in the first movie, there's this... Um, please forgive the yelling in the background. My son is yelling for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Anyways, like I was saying, uh, in the first movie, Bombay was ostracized from the team. Uh, this time it wasn't just his celebrity. He was also called out for going out for ice cream or something with Iceland's trainer uh, as a bit of a side note. Uh, so yeah, he went for an outdoor skate and kind of lied in the snow, remembering how uh, wonderful it is to play hockey. This time he goes for a morning skate uh, down by the beach, rollerblade style this time. So Team USA then has a game against Germany. Uh, Gordon Bombay fails to arrive on time and uh, team tutor Michelle takes over as coach uh, to avoid a forfeit. They're struggling, entering the third period. They're tied with Germany on the brink of disaster. It's a double elimination tournament, so if they lose, they're out. 
And then Bobby arrives with a duck called noise from the stands, apologizes, and uh, they're inspired by the return of their coach, and they win the game with their signature flying V, advanced to the next round. Now, uh, the true nature of Adam Banks's wrist injury is revealed, and he's benched uh, despite Banks's um, desire to play and impress the scouts because it's his last chance to impress or a chance to impress, even though he's only like 14 or 15. To fill the open roster spot, Charlie recruits street hockey player Russ Tyler, the aforementioned Keenan Thompson, and his knuckle puck. And the knuckle puck rotates end over end rather than spinning around the center line. And uh, that shot secures USA's victory over Russia. So finally, they beat a credible hockey country, advancing to the championship game for a rematch against Iceland. Now, I have some issues here as to how uh, this Russ Tyler is allowed to kind of just walk on the street and uh, join a major hockey country's international junior team, but uh, we won't, you know, fault uh, Disney here for their lack of realism. There's some other points that I'll bring up here in a couple minutes. Now, Adam Banks is somehow healed for the game against Iceland, but the team has a full roster now that Russ is on the team. So Charlie Conway, the hero from the first movie, gives up his roster spot, becomes an assistant coach, and lets Adam come back. And uh, I don't really know, see the logic there, but that's what happens. Now in the final game, the physically imposing Iceland initially dominates as the Ducks just rack up penalty after penalty. Uh, Ken Wu, who's a uh, the figure skater I mentioned earlier, he picks a fight. The Bash Brothers fight the entire Iceland bench. Quack. Uh, Dwayne, quack, quack, quack. Uh, Dwayne the rodeo man lassos an imposing player before that opponent can check Connie. And as an annoyed Gordon Bombay observes, "This isn't a hockey game; it's a circus." Quack, quack, quack. quack. After a rousing locker room speech from Bombay and new duck jerseys arrive. These are the official Anaheim Mighty Duck jerseys from back in the day. A little cross-promotion there from Disney. Uh, a big upgrade over their uh, USA look. And a big upgrade over the original Mighty Duck jerseys. And I really wish the Ducks still had them, but that's uh, time for a different day. The Ducks tie the game with goals from Connie, Banks, Luis, who finally learns how to stop, and Russ, who... Okay, this is ridiculous. So... Uh, yeah, Luis Mendoza, breakaway, manages to stop in front of the goalie and then ices him, completely snows him in the face and taps it in for the goal. That's not allowed. Next, we have Russ, who disguises himself as Goldberg, rips off his goalie mask. So this is, he's playing in the goalie position, gets a shooter stick, shoots a knuckle puck, and then... Um, ties the game. So, very gimmicky there. Let's be honest. Um, so, the game is forced to go to a shootout. There's no overtime, apparently. This Junior Goodwill Games goes right to a shootout in the final game. Uh, the, the 
Ducks are up 4-3 in a very uninspiring shootout. There's lots of, you know, they refer to triple dekes, whatever. It's just kind of stick handling back and forth and shoot it in, whatever. Uh, now, this is where tournament leading scorer Gunnar Stahl steps up, and he's the final shooter. Bombay replaces Goldberg with Julie Gaffney, who has a much faster glove. And the attempted shootout move by Gunnar Stahl is a skate just past the blue line. He stops abruptly, fires a slap shot. Julie falls to the ice, and it's not initially revealed as to whether it was stopped. There's a silence, a pause. All of Arrowhead Pond goes silent, and then Julie pops the puck out of her glove. I don't know why there was any suspense there, because clearly... She stopped the, the puck. Uh, the goal light didn't go on. The back of the net didn't bulge from a slap shot. It was a clear save, but, you know, the entire stadium was, for some reason, in breathless anticipation. She opens her glove, drops the puck, and uh, the Ducks beat Iceland to win the tournament. Uh, the coach is disappointed, but he congratulates Bombay and Charlie as a good captain. Um goes up to Gunnar Stahl and congratulates him. And Gunnar says, good work, Captain Duck. And that's kind of how the movie ends. And the credits are the Ducks sitting around a campfire singing, we are the champions. Now, where do we start? Uh, First of all, the team is run by a sponsor, not USA Hockey, Hendrix. I can't remember if they're an automotive company or something. But early in the movie... Charlie Conway complains that the Ducks can't wear um, their old Ducks jerseys. Clearly, that doesn't get how international competition works because if you're playing for Team USA, then you have to wear Team USA colors. It's not not rocket science here, Charlie. There are a bunch of notable cameos in this movie. Uh, first being our team president, Cam Neely, who appears at a party that is attended by Coach Bombay, along with Chris Chelios and Luke Robitaille. Wayne Gretzky later makes an appearance, and there's a newspaper headline that says, Gretzky blesses U.S. effort. Why in the world would Wayne Gretzky bless the U.S. effort? He is Canadian. Which, speaking of, there is no mention of Canada at the Junior Goodwill Games. And that is just downright shocking. Any major tournament, Canada should be... Uh, you know, the favorites. Let's just be honest. Sorry for my American listeners, but being up here in Canada, Canada should be the favorite. Other cameos include Christy Yamaguchi, Greg Luganis, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Darren Pang, Doc Emmerich, and Dennis Rodman for some reason. Um, What else are we going with here? Yeah, this is what I didn't get either. So Julie Gaffney, she asks... Coach Bombay to give her some more playing time. Like I mentioned before, he said Goldberg had the hot hand. She does get a chance to come in and immediately drops her blocker and trapper and gets kicked out of the game. So not really sure what Julie's thinking was there, but she does come in later and make the tournament winning safe. Uh, I mentioned the street hockey game to bring them together. That was on a game day, which kind of risky there. Um, what else did I mention? Oh, yeah, Flying V, which was used earlier in the movie to complete perfection. The 
uh, Iceland team. They try it against them in the final. And Iceland, five players just line up against the V and take them all out. I don't know how that wasn't interference, but uh, taking out players without the puck is generally not allowed in the uh, in the hockey. In the hockey. Um, Bombay's speech. Again, these are just observations that I had. I was trying to take notes throughout. There was a lot of wacky stuff. I couldn't keep track of it, but... Bombay's speech at second intermission of the final game against Iceland. He says, they're still three points up. Points? Points? They're not points. They're goals. Nobody says points when they're talking about hockey. Big uh, script faux pas there, Mr. Steve Brill. I mentioned the Mendoza snowing the goalie, Kenyon Thompson pretending to be a goalie. Uh, one of those goals was also an alley-oop play, which w- reminded me of uh, Carlson to Hoffman against the Bruins a few years ago. Uh, I mentioned no shootout, uh, sorry, no overtime before the shootout. And Gunnar Stahl, again, with the worst move of all time. He deeks a little bit, full stop, rips a slapper, clearly saved by Julie. I don't know why uh, there was any drama there. Now, I looked up who played um, Gunnar Stahl in this movie, and it is a guy named Scott White. He's an American actor. He appeared on That 70s Show, Just Shoot Me, D2, and he also, as I've learned, appeared in D3, although as a different character. He did not play Gunnar Stahl in D3. He comes back in that movie as a guy named Scott Scooter Holland. So I'll be sure to keep an eye on Scooter as I watch D3 next weekend and we'll review D3 next week. So that's a little interesting trivia. A little fun fact for you. The filming of the final game was the very first event to take place at Arrowhead Pond. It attracted 15,000 people. That was obviously the home of the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim. Production spanned over several days and... The crowd was not going to be consistent, so uh, cardboard stand-ups were brought in and moved around for fill-in shots. Interesting. The Mighty Ducks of Anaheim, as we mentioned uh, last week, uh, kind of came out of these movies. They were purchased by Disney, and they made their NHL debut in uh, 1994 as well. Actually, the 1993-94 season, I should say. In terms of reception, the film generally received negative reviews. It has a 21% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is down from 23% for the first movie. Destin Howe of the Washington Post wrote, D2, The Mighty Ducks, reaches an extraordinary low, even for a Disney sequel. The unctuous barrage of flag-waving, message-mongering, Counterfeit morality, which contains the stalest kitty team heroics in recent memory, makes the original innocuous ducks look like one of the great works. I'd have to agree. I enjoyed the first one a lot better. The second was pretty gimmicky and very inconsistent in terms of the rules of hockey, the general workings of international tournaments, and um, I enjoyed the first one a little bit more, I think. I'm going to ask our seven-year-old son now what he thought of the movie. And what's your review? It's good. 
On a scale of one to ten, what would you give it? Ten. And what was your favorite part? Uh, I don't know. The street hockey game, maybe? Yeah. Knuckle puck? Remember the knuckle puck? Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for your review. What about you, Henry? How was it? Bad. Bad. Oh, ouch. What would you give it on a scale of one to ten? Hundred. Um, that's not consistent with uh, your original rating, but thank you so much. There you go, friends. That's it for today's episode of Locked Off Boston Bruins, including the story of how the Bruins came to be, how they got their name, and also a review of Mighty Ducks D2. I hope you're all keeping well and uh, that you have a good start to your new week. We'll be back Wednesday and Friday this week with new episodes of Lockdown Boston Bruins, looking at some other great moments in franchise history. Uh, I am looking forward to the season series finale of Homeland coming up tonight and also uh, another episode of Westworld, although I tweeted the other day I'm not quite sure what's going on and why I'm watching, but I still am. And here we are. It has been renewed for season four. We're also watching Waco on uh, Netflix, which is which is pretty interesting. And uh, I've started season seven of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is one of my favorite sitcoms. So yeah, let me know what you guys are watching. Hit me up on Twitter at ENC McLaren. Follow the show at LO underscore Boston Bruins. And you can also, uh, yeah, download, subscribe, wherever podcasts are found. Please now go listen to the Locked On NHL podcast for some great hockey content, which we're all hard up for these days during the season pause. That's it. Thanks so much for listening, friends. We'll talk to you again later. Peace.